Welcome to The Last Supper, a weekly podcast featuring new and established artists, galleries, curators, and collectors in Asia. Hello everyone, I'm your host Oscar Vernhuis, a Dutch-Korean artist based on Lama Island in Hong Kong. In this episode, I sat down with curator Juliana Chan and talked about her current show The World Is Your Oyster, a group exhibition of five Hong Kong artists at Ben Baron Fine Arts Gallery in Wonchuk Han. We explored the Korean fermentation culture of Sommat, a new live art initiative per platform, what a lecture performance is, and the benefits of journaling. Before I begin, I'd like to mention that the Last Supper podcast is supported by the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association, a member-based non-profit organization of established local and international art galleries in Hong Kong. Hi Juliana, how are you feeling today? Great! One thing that I noticed when I was setting up the podcast equipment, that there is a small little pet bowl next to me that is either for a cat or a dog. Do you have a pet? And if so, what kind of pet is it? I don't know if you want that in your podcast, but (laughs) I feel like talking about my dog all the time. (laughs) It's this um, little French bulldog. She's... Almost, she's turning six next year. She, we had her um, since March, so she's completely changed my life, and she's just adorable. Honestly, it feels so good to care for some something else other than yourself, other than thinking about yourself, of yourself all the time. So, today's episode is in a private office at Ben Brown Gallery with free artworks that I'm not familiar with. What can you tell me about these works? Well, I would say this office reflects Ben Brown Fine Arts, the gallery's aesthetic very well. So behind you, Oscar, there is Arazzi by um, Arighiero Boetti, which is really the, um, the beginning, really, and passion for the gallery founder, Ben Brown. And then, you know, on my left and right, there are Hank Willis Thomas and Ewa Erutsku. Then they're the, you know, younger generations, and then behind me, there's Mikael Bastelo's work, which is very, you know, in a way um, simple in its aesthetic, but very thick oil painting. And so, you know, Ben Brown Fine Arts is a gallery that combines contemporary art and also specializing in post-war Italian. And it's situated in Wanzhou which is another interesting point. You know, when I remember when I first joined Ben Brown, I no longer work there, but I started um, my career um, in arts with Ben and Amanda. We were in Pedder Building in Central, and that was really, you know, the... The heart of contemporary art and then there were some discussions of many galleries about do we move to Wan Hang, do we not move to Wan Hang. at that point there wasn't even um uh, mtr station yet you know and to see it being really the hub outside of central of more like um vibrant and emerging um, hub for contemporary galleries it's really amazing I hear that there was some reluctance to move from Central to Wonchok Han in Hong Kong. What do you think were the concerns at the time? Um, mainly it's the logistics. So the MTR helps a lot. Another thing is, but that's not limited to Wonchok Han. Uh, it's largely in Hong Kong. It's the low ceilings. So, I mean, you can also see here, there's a lot of beams in the ceilings and because it's an industrial building. Um, that's something that 
is very special about Pedder Building is it has a very high ceiling compared to other uh, buildings in Hong Kong and. I think those were the two concerns. But then, you know, one gallery start doing it, and another one follows, and you see what well, those challenges actually can be overcome. And the arrival of MTR station really helps if you have good works and people are invested in the gallery scene and in the in collecting, they will come. And so it, it's really nice to see it really coming together. There's a lot happening this weekend. We have an art fair in the convention center in Wang Chai. We have the monthly Southside Saturday, and of course your new group show, "The World Is Your Oyster," at the Ben Brown Gallery that you just described. So this is the one that you curated, and is also part of the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association Summer Program. What can you tell me about the group exhibition? Yeah, so um, in the past year, I would say the gallery Ben Brown has been giving local artists um, a summer exhibition to foster their their talents and promote their work. And so this year, I'm very lucky to be able to work with them. It's a group exhibition that features five artists. They from, I mean, some of them are younger, some of them a little bit more experienced. But overall, I guess they're all sort of at the relatively early stage of their career, and hence the title, "The World Is Your Oyster." You know, it's almost like a congratulatory wish to them. You know, as they embark on their journey, but also a celebration of their talents. Really, one of um, the core thing we want to do in this show is to highlight. The amazing works that the local artists produce and they are producing. On another hand, the title also refers to this underlying theme uh, of the show that it's about food. It's about our relationship with food and how distant we are from the food that we eat, both physically and psychologically. So in this show, there are two video works by Natalie Low, Lola Lai. And then one is called Glacier and the other one is fermentation. It's about fermentation, but it's called coal fire. They're really interesting work. So coal fire is a mix of videos of vegetables and fruit being fermented in glass jars together with clips of plain crush. So Natalie her before in her previous life she worked with as a tourist journalist so she would travel a lot and then do a lot of photo yeah travel a lot and do a lot of like trip reviews and etc and then so travel was like common thing for her even though she was advised not to watch those videos because you fly so much she just couldn't resist just kind of like when you're alone in a hotel room by yourself you want to watch horror movie type of thing i guess so She kept watching them, and then she started to realize that there is this. Sorry, I should say. Then she moved on to be an artist farmer, and she worked with fermentations a lot to keep the leftover or not so pretty looking vegetables usable during winter. And then there's a certain similarity between the two things. That is again the element of unpredictability. So you know, in fermentation, you really don't have a control of the outcome. Even though in you know the modern food industry, there has a lot of 
industrialized scientific way to ferment vegetable and food. But when you actually the better way to do it, or when you do it in a, in a traditional way, there is so much that is out of your control. And it reminds me of this. Uh, actually, I don't know it, but this is Korean word. It, it's about. It sort of describes the taste of your mother's hand in cooking, but scientifically, it really refers to all the bacteria or whatever that's on your skin that is part of the cooking that has an impact on the result of fermentation on the food that your mother make or your grandmother make. So, kind of like art, there's material, there is technique, but there is something else that you can't really put words to it. And it's when you take this very scientific approach to it, like you that you're trying to take a scientific approach to food. That's, I, I guess, something that I want to talk about. Is it good? Is it bad? I think what you're referring to is the Korean word sonmat, which translates very loosely to hand taste, and I think it belongs to a fermentation culture that. Is thousands of years old. So this exhibition is about food. Besides looking at the arts, can visitors taste it as well? We do have a workshop um, that uh, Natalie will lead, and we actually will be making simple fermentation with vegetables like cucumbers and stuff and, and beetroot. So that's another thing, like. We do want people to be able to come and put their hands on something, and if possible, if COVID restrictions is okay, then even try and taste something. It's it's not. It it would be weird to do a food exhibition without food, right? Yes, hopefully the COVID restrictions won't be too bad over the next few weeks, and we will be able to taste the food in the workshop. Let's also talk about Amy Stong's free oil paintings that I noticed when I walked in. Can you speak more about her work and context of her work in this show? Um, her works are quite present in in the exhibition. I think you saw it too. They're like three big oil on canvas painting, and those are inspired by photographs of her grandmother and her mother's wedding banquet. And then just right now, her sister I think uh, is also getting married, so she's. Heavily involved in this wedding planning, um, so I guess that when I approached Amy, we were talking about food. We at the beginning we talk a little bit about the idea of comfort food and relationship between food and emotions, and then slowly with everything that is happening in her her life, she started to notice the heavy role that food plays in our culture and ritual. It's like. You know, when it's birthday, we celebrate with the cake. When it's wedding, in especially here in Hong Kong, there's this really elaborate demonstration of food. It's almost like an equal demonstration of wealth and hopefully prosperity for the newlyweds. And so, Amy's work, I think, they are um, in a way they're very interesting. It's like she points this out, but then she also. Make you confronted and see: Is there any absurdity in it? Like how? Just think about the food waste that that is related to wedding industry. You know, it's 
almost like I don't know. I I think her work reminds me of you know the the idea of Jean Paul Sartre's like the bad faith. Like you, you don't think that you have a choice, but then in reality, everyone has a choice in their decisions. So even though your family, the society, has obviously. Limit to the options that you have. You do have a choice to make your own decisions instead of just following a certain unwritten rule. So, and I really like how Amy's work really inspire, like takes inspirations from her family history, her personal experience. It's very intimate. The way you talk about food tasting is very reminiscent of appreciating art. I can see a parallel how you develop your taste for food, and how you develop appreciation for arts. In both cases, you use your senses.、Mm-hmm. But I mean, I also think about it as like wine tasting or whiskey tasting. You know,、um, every you know you taste or you see, you feel with. Whatever you see, taste, and feel, it's personal. You never go in front of a painting just. With like a white canvas, you you go to a painting carrying your own experience, you know your own cultural background. You go in front of a painting with the complexity of what makes you you. Of course, your experience cannot be the same with others, and it is it's actually scary at least in wine tasting, you know. And then people will be like, "Oh no no, th- th- this tastes like leather to me. It's definitely heavy leather." And Fine, maybe it's leather to you, but it could be silk for another person. There's no one narrative over another, and that I think is heavily celebrated in contemporary art. It's it's not one narrative. It's not one story. It's the door that opens to many possibilities and stories. Not having one narrative is that what people grapple with when looking at contemporary art. That there is not a single viewpoint or simple meaning to the work, and that everyone's experience is different, and this multiplex of meaning can be challenging for first-time art viewers. I think so. I think it's hard for me too. So I noticed that up until maybe a year or so ago, I would go see a show, and the first thing I would see is look at the wall text. It's almost like a desire to look for answer first, and then if it aligns with what I thought, oh, okay, 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 I haven't lost my touch. But if it doesn't, it's like, oh my god, what's wrong with me? Yeah, I think we want reassurance. Giving surrounding ourselves to the unknown or whatever is possible, it can get scary. And、um, there's always this sort of authoritative voice that tells you what is and what not. It and it and I think it takes confidence and I don't know belief to just stick with. Well, I I wouldn't even say stick with to just openness. I think takes confidence. Shall we put it that way? How is your attitude at the moment? Do you feel more confident now than several years ago? A little bit, I would say, but that is, yeah. I think a lot of the my friends and my mentors that、um, helped me a lot on that journey. We spoke about the group show and some of the artists. What about the theme of the world is your oyster? How did he develop this, and why did he focus on this narrative? 
Um, it's funny. It's um, actually, I think it was last year I joined this um, Taekwon Summer Institute and then um, I met this amazing um, lecturer, Yukwe, and I was just so blown away by um, his lecture. And I went to him. I was like, oh, my God, how, how do you do this? How, how do you produce such amazing writings? How do you think like that? And then he said... Um, you write well when you write something that you truly care about. And I thought about that a lot. And I asked myself, what do I really, really care about? And it turns out that I really care about food. I mean, <laughs> it sounds like I'm not doing this seriously, but honestly, I realized a lot of the decisions in my life um, have to do with food. Um, I talk about food. I love cooking. And so I thought, okay, then why not do a show about food since I care about it so much. My husband and I, we just got back from like a, a week holiday in, in Italy. And then uh, he doesn't speak Italian, but he kind of pick up a few words. And then he said to me, he said, wow, you know, I notice when you're around with your Italian friends and your Chinese family, you guys only talk about food. And it's so true that that's all that we talk about. Yeah. What I understand is that you reflected on what you're really passionate about. And you came to the conclusion that this was food. What inspired you and what else can you tell me about the specific curatorial direction? Yeah, I mean, it's also um, inspired by the book, although it's not directly mentioned in the press release that I read that was written by Michael Pollan. And again, it is about this phenomenal, I mean, there are a lot of phenomenals, but you know, but it's about this particular one, how we approach, try to approach food almost from only a scientific way of looking at it, you know, all these dietary restrictions and calculating calories and proteins and etc. Um, but one thing that he mentioned, which I thought is very similar to art, is he said, you know, culture is just a fancy word for your mother and, and what your mother give you is really the experience around the table. Well, the second part I built on it, but you know, just the re experience around the table. You build your own identity and you build a collective memory and culture around making food and sharing them. And that is so, in a way, very similar to art making, right? And going to museums and yeah, seeing art or tasting something with your parents at the beginning and then you, 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 you try to do it with your friends afterwards and you try a little bit of craft at home. So... The current exhibition is a group of local artists. Can you speak more about how you decided and selected their work and the challenge you faced to find the right diversity within the group? Mm, I think I intentionally try to make sure that there is a mix of medium. So in the show, you see Avery Lau, who's a printmaker, and then you see Mindy, who, you know, I, I would describe her more like interdisciplinary. She does video work, and then she does drawings and paintings. So a mixture of medium is very important. I mean, some of them we have, you know, their research is so related to the topic that I'm curating. It was almost a given that I will reach out to them, for example, Natalie Lowe. I've also really, really liked her show at WMA a few years ago, her video essay. I just, she has this very amazing sort of 
subtle narrative of her experience. She's um, she practiced this half farmer, half ex, and her ex is artist. You know, so she works with this group of people who are half 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 farmer, half photographer, half farmer, half something else, and. I'm quite envious that I I feel like there is just something really liberating about deciding and carving out a career trajectory for yourself that is not that cannot be put into one box or another. And then yeah, so that's kind of how I select you know some of the artists I've met them before. I've seen their work. I really like it. Others I feel like they have great potential. And I would like to see where this show can take them. All the artists of this group show are from Hong Kong. Was this deliberately, or did the COVID restrictions in Hong Kong play a role in this? Yes, I think a lot of the time、um, you don't see that many Hong Kong artist shows, even though we're in Hong Kong. I think. I don't know. I I feel like it's sort of like a chicken and egg question, right? You say, oh, there maybe there just isn't enough demand for it, or they're not popular. But then, how can there be if you're not giving them opportunities at the beginning? And also, you know, like if you don't show, or for me, for myself, I feel like if I don't work with local artists in Hong Kong, then I can really be working anywhere. The fact that I am working in Hong Kong. Is an opportunity for me to be in touch with the local community and the local artists. And another part of what I do that is this platform, it, it would never have been possible without local artists and the support that they give. So it's 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 only normal that I do that. It's really fascinating that we talk about local Hong Kong artists, but to put this in context, Hong Kong. And this is just my personal viewpoint. Has always been, and still probably is, a very transient city with many foreigners arriving, and lately leaving as well. I'm just hypothesizing here, but that may be one of the reasons why there is a focus on foreign arts that accommodates the high net worth expats who are attracted to a more Western style of art. Hong Kong always had great local artists, and I know that you've been promoting these artists for a while. Is that a fair description? Yeah, I, w- I would say that is the case for me. I mean,、um, I I joined a local non-for-profit art space、uh, almost two two and a half year ago, specifically because I wanted to do more work that is local oriented. Um, and another thing is, I think you know, even the general atmosphere, there has always been interest and focus on local art scenes. Is probably is just amplified、um, because of the travel restrictions, but it doesn't mean that it will go away. And I hope it will not go away. If I recall it correctly, you studied art history, right? That's how I vaguely remember it as well. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you mentioned earlier when you were talking about Natalie Lowe that you envy people and that you find it liberating that some of them can project and plan a career direction for themselves that doesn't really fit in a box. When you studied art history, 
did you imagine yourself working in the art industry and what attracted you to the commercial domain of art? Um, I, honestly, I had no idea what I, what I was getting myself into. I, I loved languages. I loved all the art that I saw. So I was like, okay, then, then let's do both. So then I, I, I studied art history um, overseas. And then I didn't really know what I wanted to do, but I was always really drawn to the energy of commercial galleries, of art fairs. There's just this go-getter type of, yeah, let's go, let's make it happen. And then things move fast and you, you go meet people and then you talk about their art. And I, I just, even to this days, I, I miss that because right now I'm working for an NGO. So like, I really miss this hyper energy of the art world. Curating, I mean, I've always really wanted to do it. I, you know, I'm still learning, but from just based on this experience, it's kind of like working with the whole team. And, you know, there's this like, when you are sort of the team lead, but not quite, you know, there's this beautiful illustration that shows what leadership is. It's just exactly the same as your team, but just slightly bigger because you need one person to make decisions. If you leave it to a whole group, then nothing will happen. And I kind of see it like that. And so, yeah, my fear is that the curatorial theme will overpower the work or it's more about the curatorial theme. I hope it's not. Um, but then again, I'm, I'm still learning. And so far, it's been really great. How have you developed your curatorial capabilities and skills? And what do you do to develop them further? So a lot of the people that I meet in Hong Kong, they're really helpful for me. So um, I'll ask the artists about their good experience with the curator and a bad experience with curator. What makes it good and what makes it bad as something that I can map myself around. Um, Celia Ho, who's the curator of Parasite, she's she's always been so supportive and she is also very giving and always puts artists first. Um, I, and I love the show she does. Um, you know, and I, I go to see museum exhibitions, like for example, uh, the one last year, Trust and Confusion in Daegun was, was really wonderful to see. Yeah, so I guess just a little bit of everything. Now, let's also talk about your most recent initiative, which you very briefly refer to per platform. How did this begin and what is this? So, yeah, per platform is an organization that I founded with Florence Lam, who you also know, uh, who's a local performance artist. We started it. Um, I would say like last year, June sometime. Actually, I still remember the beginning very well. It was like Florence came to see me in my office in Cattle Depot and it was like beautiful day. And so we took the chair out and we're sitting in the sun and we just, you know, talking. And then we, we you know, we both lived aboard. So we were just saying, oh, what is it like to coming back into Hong Kong and the local uh, scene? And we're like, yeah, there isn't that much space or programs that's dedicated to life art. Obviously, two of us, I don't know, I don't even know if we were drunk. We're just like, yeah, let's do it. Let, let's do a life art festival without knowing what it takes. 
And then a few months later, then we did the first episode of the Life Art Festival per platform. And it's a, like a three-day event. The first one sort of happened over the place really so we're working with some alternative art space in Samshuipo we worked with the Unscheduled which is a local art fair and again just circle back to this local community it was really only possible through the help that they gave us you know from helping us to set up to giving us the place to helping us with documentations when you came to Hong Kong or when you actually returned to Hong Kong, did you already had an interest in live performances or was this developed over the last few years? No, I wouldn't say I was involved, like directly involved, but it's always, you know, present in my, I don't know, formative years in Europe. It's at the master in Edinburgh and there's a huge... A festival called the Finch. It's not life art. It's a little bit of everything. And I just remember, you know, our university campus will be used for the festival. And I just remember the energy. Everyone's happy, you know, and they're out enjoying whether it's music or theater. And there was just this collaborate celebration of of art. And I, yeah, I, I remember that very well. And then I've always liked performance art. I don't know if it has anything to do, I'm, I'm speaking personally, have anything to do with me being a very introverted person. Performance art is very, in a way, when you see it, you're not just a spectator. You're a spectator, you're the witness at the same time as the participant. So it really pushed me out of my comfort zone. And I like that. It, it challenges me. Kind of like conceptual art challenges you to think. There's also another, like, a sense of almost like surrender when you go and see a performance art. You surrender yourself to the unpredictability of the event. When you see a painting on a wall, you might already seen it in a catalog that, you know, somewhere before. In a way, you know what you're getting yourself into. Obviously, there's that's no way to say that photograph can replicate the impact um, seeing a work in real person. But with performance art, you really don't know what you're getting yourself into you know sometimes we don't even know so yeah there's also a very big trust element between the curator and the artists and I like that a lot because it's not about me or Florence or anyone reading a work in a certain way and then put that on the artist it's about at least to me exploring a narrative together which can be can open up even more narratives. And and I always liked it when people leave a performance asking themselves with more questions than answers. The Per platform, the live performance platform, is that a annual event? Well, Per Platform started as a yearly event. Um, and then, you know, we started thinking about, okay, maybe it's just, it's not enough to just showcase it once a year. If you want to increase the visibility of performance art and help foster the growth of it, we needed to do more. So then we start thinking about, from from a annual festival, now we're moving towards an organization. 
and our outlook is a little bit more systematic. So every year we have a certain set of programs that we wrote out and alongside with a lot of boring paperwork that I'm not going to put you to stick with. And so, yeah, so that's what we are looking at. Was that a very long answer to your short question? <laughs> <laughs> no, that's perfectly fine. You hosted and organized your very first festival last year. And since then you have organized, I think, two more. Besides that this is more systematic in terms of programming, what else have you evolved and introduced? Yeah, I okay, the, the number of artists increased before we the number of open call we received also increased. But also we, we and I mean Florence and I, we're more experienced. We know what we're getting ourselves into this time. <laughs> and um, we're better prepared. And I think the first round was, was more like an experimental. And then as we done it, gained a little bit more experience of it, slowly the structures start to come out. And... And what I have always liked about the program, and then again, I'm biased, is that it has this mentoring element. So we invite like a more established performance artist to talk to these young artists, mentor for the lack of better word. It's, it's not hierarchical necessarily, but just have a conversation with them, you know, to talk about the concept of the work or even simple things like the technical issues that they might face. The way you think of a performance in your head and the way it actually happens can be very different. So, yeah, with, with those infrastructures more established and clear, we feel like we could do or we explore more of the potential of the festival. And then we also tried ticketing this year, which was great because artists should get paid fairly for that. We have new type of performance like lecture performance or performative installations. And those are the new things that we are exploring. You mentioned that you introduced a lecture performance. What is a lecture performance and can you describe this further to me? Yeah, that's a good question. It's um, it's almost like a mixture between performance, theater. Yeah, so it's you can almost think about it as a performative presentation of an in-depth research of something. Um, depends on how the artist choose to present it. I mean, it, it's definitely a learning opportunity for me to learn to let go even as an organizer to learn to trust and trust is not getting one thing done trust is a process of conversations and exchanges and sometimes getting mad and want to knife someone and but continue to carry on for come and go so it, it's not easy and I, I must say that I think my partner Florence really helped me a lot on this um yeah besides being a viewer and a observer have you actively participated in a live performance yourself as well well when there are audience participatory works i i joined in a little bit but i can again i think that's what's fascinating for me for performance artists myself 
my physical and psychological self is so evident. I'm so aware of myself, of this like awkward, really introverted, not want to be part of person in the piece. And rarely do I see, feel, uh, do I see any other artwork that makes me so conscious. And it's just such a unique experience when you are in a performance work. I was told that I should definitely join the workshop. I am still working on it. Um, I might need some therapy session before I can commit to that, but that's on my to-do list. Through the live performance, you said you have a heightened awareness of yourself and your own emotions and feelings. Are there practices and methods that you use to develop a greater sense of awareness and consciousness? Um, I journal a lot. I, I reflect, I guess, a lot. I think, yeah, that's it for me. I'm not an athletic person. <laughs> you know, I, I wish I can say I do yoga, I have this yoga training, but no. Has journaling been a recent practice or how long have you been doing this for? I think it has been in the last few years, particularly, but it's always been something that um, was, you know, recommended to me as by my friends and family as something that helps with stress. I'm a very easily stressed person. Um, yeah. What do you stress about? Oh my God, everything. Everything. The doorbell just rang. <laughs> I'm so stressed. I was like, oh my God, I made this guy come all the way here and this is not working. That's not working. It is awful. You know? How does journaling help you with dealing and managing your stress? A journaling really, really helps, I think. Like when you rethink what happened or you realize most of the thing actually don't matter. But most importantly, when if I always feel like I do something and then once I identify what I learn from it, then I can just put it behind me. What people think or say, it, it's just behind me. Would you describe yourself as a person that can easily move on? It's not easy. I make it sound like it's easy, so it sounds cool, but it's not easy at all. But, um, but you have to do it, right? You, you can't always be tied to, oh my God, what if he thinks that? Or oh, she thinks that? You, there, there has to be a cutoff point. Otherwise, new project would never happen. Do you frequently or do you read your own journals back? I do read them back and I'm like, oh my God, this is very embarrassing. But it's a good sign, right? I tell myself, if you're not embarrassed by what you did, then you probably haven't really grown. So I look forward to, I don't know, two years time being embarrassed by this show. But yeah. I hope you learned something when you look back at this podcast. In fact, I, I listen to myself every week because I have to edit the recordings. But going back to journaling... I used to have a journal or I would write down notes, not every day, but every week. And I recently started to sketch more as well. I think it's quite common among creative people to have some type of journal. Actually, one of the artists from, well, she's no longer living in Hong Kong, but she's quite a big figure in Hong Kong, Ivy Ma. She told me one time that she keeps, you know, she has this, habit of keeping a drawing journal 
is just every day she draws a little bit. It can be, again, it's those are her words, right? Those are her language of communication, and she just draws them every day. And it's um, and something that her teacher told her to experiment with, and she's been doing that ever since. It, an out channeling of something, and through that you clear your mind and hopefully crystallize an experience, make it clearer, and learn something from it. Let's move on and talk about if you have anything else in the pipeline because you just finished the Per Platform Festival and also this group show that we just discussed. And this show is on until the mid of September, I think, at Ben Brown Gallery. I don't know. I, I hope so. So any listeners interested, please reach out. <laughs> I don't know. I hope so. I mean, yeah, that's definitely something I want to try. Again, I think I need to think about what I did right or wrong or what can be improved about this show first and maybe try something new next time. Let's reflect on the current show that you have curated. What can you say about the learnings from curating this group exhibition and what have you learned? That's a good question. It has this... I don't think a curator is an artist, but there is an element of creating something from nothing before that I'm drawn to. I like it. Installation is just straight fun. It's so good. Um, and even in this installation, I'm learning a lot of new things. You know, I never really worked with um, the technology side of things much. So I'm actually learning a lot from artist Natalie Lowe about what is needed and, and all the details of it. And then I, I just love working with artists, um, hearing their practice and see if you know putting works by two different artists together if a new story or new narrative can happen yeah you've returned to hong kong for a few years how would you describe the current state of art in hong kong and are there particular trends that you have seen emerging i think again i don't know if it's you know like my experience is limited by what i see and i don't see every single show in Hong Kong, but I feel because of COVID, a lot of things is virtual. There is um eager and demand of in-person experience. And so as a consequence of that, a lot of the performance work and big installations where the audience either actively participate or immerse in this big environment, people seem to really like it. And obviously there's also a lot of conversation about the virtual world and nft and etc that seems to be also kind of a discussion line i don't think you've been involved in an nft project yet but is this something you follow very closely as well oh yeah absolutely um i don't i mean i, I was just in maxi in rome and then there was this show it's all about uh, technology and the virtual world some nft or pieces around nft phenomenal was also exhibited there it's yeah it's always great to learn something new i know i interviewed angel who's also a dear friend of mine yeah she's very into that and she knows a lot about it and she's working on web 3.0 right 
Yes, Angel is working on several digital and mixed media projects. Not sure if they are all specifically related to NFT, but you seem to be slightly reluctant to mint and create an NFT. What are your concerns about this? What stops me? I think the artistic language in that's practiced by many of the NFT artists is is very different from contemporary art language. I think they will, and I hope they do, meet at a certain point. But it's it's just not something that I'm used to. Thank you, Juliana, for being my guest today. Yeah, this has been really nice. It's kind of just feel like a conversation to get to know you. So thank you. Thank you for listening to this episode with Juliana Chan. And you can visit The World is Your Oyster, which is part of the Hong Kong Art Gallery Association summer program until the 21st September at the Ben Brown Fine Arts Gallery in Hong Kong. That's it for this episode of The Last Supper. In order to continue to offer episodes for free, we will need your support. And you can simply do this by following this podcast, by giving it a rating, leaving a comment, or by sharing it. You can find more information on my Instagram at thelastsupper.asia and on my website www.oscarvenhuis.com. And before I go, if you have any further questions or suggestions, feel free to message me on oscar at oscarvenhuis.com. Of course, I will post all the links, references of my guest and my contact email in this podcast description as well. <music>